this cup of tea, the lady insisted, was prepared improperly. You put the tea in first and then the milk, rather than putting the milk in before the tea. I didn't see it, but I could taste the difference immediately. Could she really? And if so, how would we know? This is the After Dinner Scholar from Wyoming Catholic College, and I'm your host, Dr. Jim Tonkowicz. The story of the lady tasting tea is all about the scientific method. How do we use experimentation to test her claim that she tastes the difference between a cup where milk was added to tea and one where tea was added to milk? While the answer may seem straightforward enough, it turns out that any scientific experiment is fraught with complications and difficulties. Dr. Scott Olson's students have been struggling with some of those complications and difficulties in this, the first semester of their junior year. This week on the After Dinner Scholar, Dr. Olson gives us a glimpse into the questions. Scott, to begin with, what is the scientific method? What are we talking about? I sort of remember something about that from high school, but it's been a long time. Ooh, boy, that's a big question. Um, I guess broadly we just mean how is it that we know things you know, what's a reliable way that we can come to know the truth about the natural world? That's what we mean most broadly by it. And does so. that include experimentation? What, what, what's part of that? Or is it real complicated? Uh, of course it's complicated. But yeah, at first it involves experimentation. We have to be humble and go look at nature and ask nature to tell us the way that it is. So that, that primarily means, right, that we go out and we look at the world. We can't sit in our armchair and say, the world ought to be this way. Now, in the example of the lady tasting tea, how does the scientific method show us whether or not she's telling the truth, that she can taste the difference, or whether she's not? Well, it's, I think it's an interesting example for, for a couple of reasons. It seems like a very simple question, right? But you can see that... Uh, even simple questions like that, it's not always clear what, whether or not um, any observation you make uh, means that the world has to be a certain way. So it's not the case that just because she gets all the teacups right, she necessarily has the power. She could have just gotten lucky, right? And we can make that even more obvious if we say only gave her one cup of tea and said, you know, which one is it, tea first or milk first? That's that's a, that's really the common situation that we we look at we make an observation and because of this problem of variability we want to interpret it, but uh, it's never so simple as saying, well because she did it one time she has the power. Sorry, I'm not sure if that's a well no if she did, if she did it one time it it was a it was a fifty fifty right right she could no, very easily have gotten lucky mm -hmm. right and if she yeah. does it ten times or fifty times or a hundred times exactly yeah I like to illustrate this in class by having a student flip a coin and I pretend that I'm a psychic and I'm going to read their mind and uh, not surprisingly I get it right about half the time but. Actually, it's funny, in my experience as a teacher, I think God must love me because more often than I should, I get it right. And so we have this you know, absurd moment where I claim in class to be a psychic and the students, of course, believe I'm not. And uh, it's interesting actually to think about this for, for a moment to realize that, well, put aside the fact that you already believe that I'm not a psychic. Let's just, let's put that aside for a moment and just ask, should the person believe I'm a psychic based on just that experiment if we put other things aside? Um, 
And we have to do that sort of thing when we look at nature very often because, in fact, nature can be a lot weirder than we think it is. You know, there are all kinds of phenomena that are, that are just incredible. You know, we have, for example, that moving, moving rods get shorter if they travel faster, you know, relativistic effects like that. Or we have, you know, quantum mechanical effects like particles can tunnel through walls, you know, with some finite probability and things like that. So the world can be pretty weird. Um, and we have to be open to the possibility that some weird thing is going on. So it's not, you know, logically impossible that there are people who can read minds, right? So we have to sort of let the observations tell us the way the world is. And in that case, of course, the reason why the students don't think I'm a psychic I mean, aside from the other things they know, is because I, I got it right despite, I got it right in one trial, right? So I had a really good chance of getting it right about half the time. And as you were saying, if I if we did the, the experiment, say, 100 times, and then I got it right 100 times in a row, that would be more compelling. Um, and the reason is that although I could have gotten them all right by chance, and in fact that could happen sometimes, that, that will happen sometimes, it's extremely improbable that I would get them all right by chance. You know, occasionally that will happen. You know, people joke about monkeys sitting down at a typewriter and, and banging out Shakespeare or something, you know. That will happen occasionally, you know, with some very, very small probability. People say a proof of this is that the internet exists, but anyway. Um, <laughs> <laughs> uh, just because, uh, yeah, so things, things can happen that are improbable. Right. Even if I weren't a psychic, and of course I'm not, it could happen with some small probability that I would get 100 coins right in a, in a row. Um, so then the question becomes, well, if you see me get 100 coins right in a row, should you think I'm a psychic um, or not? You know, at what point is the evidence so compelling that we should, we should go with one hypothesis over another? With the lady tasting tea or with you possibly being a psychic, there's all kinds of subjective features involved in that, right? Mm -hmm. What about, for lack of a better term, I'll call harder science. Um, you mix baking soda and vinegar, and you get fizzing. Mm -hmm. oh. Right, and that's that's the way, of course, people tend to think of the world, sort of the baking soda uh, vinegar version. Yeah, in fact, what happens is that even basic things we'd like to know about the world, things that we'd like to measure, are never that easy. We're kind of insulated from this because the things we think of measuring are, are things that tend to be easy to measure and we can measure them well enough that we're satisfied. Unless you're building cabinets or something, you don't care about a 32nd of an inch. Then if, you, if you're building cabinets, you do care about a 32nd of an inch, maybe, right? But, if you, I, but you don't care about a millionth of an inch. I don't care about a millionth of an inch, right. But it raises a kind of a, a question if you, if you realize... Um, the following. If I ask you how tall you are, actually, Jim, how tall are you? About 5'10". Uh, about okay, about 5'10". So you, you know, of course, that you're not actually 5'10", right? When you say you're 5'10", you mean something like, I held a tape measure up to myself and the nearest inch, or I got above 5'10", or something like that, right? And that was good enough, right? But suppose we really cared about your height. So we were going to replace this tape measure with inches with you know, we said, well, your height, we ought to be able to measure your height in principle to the, to the width of an atom or something. You know, we ought to be able to do that. We ought to be able to, to measure it with much greater um, resolution, with, you know, with a much finer kind of measurement. And if we did that, we'd find out that every time we measured you, we'd get a different height. 
or at least we'd get different heights with different probabilities. You would sort of wiggle under the measurement, you know, you wouldn't stay still. Maybe you would be taller one day because you had a big breakfast and the next day you'd be shorter because you, I don't know, uh, something sad crossed your mind or who, who knows what it was, right? Um, and so it raises the question, well, do you have a height? Or what does it mean to say you have a height? So that's, a, that's kind of a, a trivial example, but you can see that even things that we think are easy to measure are only, in a sense, easy to measure because we don't care that much about what the, what the quantity actually is. And most things are not like that at all. If you, if you say, want to measure the distance to a star, you might you know, take a measurement one time and get something like 100 million light years, and then measure it again and get something like 200 million light years. And you and you know obviously that's kind of unsatisfying. You know what is it? Does it does it have a distance? Obviously, part of the answer to this is that, or part of thing we should, part of the thing we should say uh, about this is that our ability to know something is not the same thing as whether or not there are distances or you do in fact have a height. But it turns out there are a lot of things that we just can't know, even simple things, um, in the kind of way we think maybe naively we can know them. As I listen to you, I can't help but ask how much I can trust science and what science has given us. Yet when I drive my car, for example, I'm trusting all kinds of science, right? Mm -hmm. What are the day-to-day -day implications of what you're saying? Are there any? Yeah, um, although unfortunately there's not a ready-made quick answer to the question. It's an enormous problem I think it's one of the reasons why it's so important to study science at, say, a liberal arts school. Um, it's really liberating in the sense that it's to be a free person in our culture, you have to know how to deal with scientific claims um, because it is the way that people try to make arguments now, right? Unfortunately, you know, if you go in front of Congress and read a poem, uh, there may have been a time when a poem could move Congress to vote a certain way, but not anymore, right? You might be able to make a scientific argument. I'm not sure even the facts um, can work anymore. But <laughs> well, yeah, you need data. You have to show up with data. We've done this survey. We've done that survey, yeah. and mm -hmm. uh, and that's all open to interpretation. Yeah. So there's kind of a slavery now to science, where on the one hand, people tend to think that it's the reliable way of coming to know the truth, but at the same time, they generally don't know how it works, and so they have to sort of believe whatever whatever people tell them. So a lot of what we're trying to do in the course uh, th that I'm working with the juniors right now is to just understand how it is that these claims can be made so that we can evaluate them. So does science get us to objective truth or not? I think it does, but we have to understand that um, when we reason about material things, uh, which is of course what natural science is attempting to do, we're reasoning about things uh, that because they're material are subject to change. And so we have this problem that, you know, when I measure you, I'm measuring something that is not in a kind of stasis. You can change, you do change. And so I can't know the thing in the way that I can know um, unchangeable things. So we're, we're forced, as Aristotle would say, to, to use induction, right? And that means that our knowing is probable in a way that it's not about, say, mathematics, where we begin with axioms and we never reason probabilistically. So much of what we know is really probable knowing. We can have a kind of certainty, but not the kind of certainty that we have, say, in a mathematical argument. You know, If I ask you, do you want to walk off a cliff? Well, 
you'll say no. And I'll say, well, why do you not want to walk off a cliff? It's not because someone has ever made a deductive mathematical argument to you that says you shouldn't walk off a cliff. You've just had a lot of experience, you know, from the youngest ages where you walked off a chair or walked off a table or a couch and you fell. And so you've, you've made a kind of induction where you say, you know, I bet if I walk off that cliff, I'll also fall. So there are a lot of things we know like that, right? You would be crazy to say, you know what, I'm going to walk off a cliff because no one's made a deductive argument to me. No one's proven mathematically that I, um, I shouldn't walk off cliffs. You'd, you'd obviously be crazy to act like that, right? So we certainly can have knowledge inductively, and we can have a kind of moral certainty. We can be compelled to certain actions, I think, um, even though many things we know only probably. The faith most people have in science approaches absolute. As Nobel Prize winner Henry Croteau put it, science is the only philosophical construct we have to determine truth with any degree of reliability. That truth, incidentally, is written with all capital letters. That his statement about science has no basis in science is secondary to the fact that science itself has variables and difficulties, as Dr. Olson pointed out. Reliability in science only goes so far. In a world brimming with absolute scientific claims about health, social systems, the economy, and the environment, it's good to keep that in mind. Not forsaking science, a great and good gift of God, but keeping the claims on our physical, intellectual, and spiritual lives in check. For Wyoming Catholic College, this is Dr. Jim Tonkowicz.